Hello there, I'm Kevin Rothrock, the Managing Editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. For today's show, a relatively brief episode in the wider catalog of this podcast, I sat down virtually with Kadri Leek, a Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Kadri is a specialist in Russian domestic and foreign policy, and in relations between Russia and the West. And she brought this expertise to bear in a recent article she wrote titled, Putin's Archaic War, Russia's Newly Outlawed Professional Class, and How It Could One Day Return. The essay addresses a lot of the issues that now dominate most discussions about Russia. Was the invasion of Ukraine inevitable, or somehow intrinsic, to the Russia that emerged from the USSR? Are there any homegrown alternatives to Putinism? Where does the Russian Federation fit into Europe and the wider world, now that it's launched an aggressive war against Ukraine? And how does the decolonization debate fit into all this? Check the description of this episode for timestamps to skip to particular questions and subjects in this interview. I began with a question about how the invasion is effectively demodernizing Russia, to put it in Kadri's words. I asked her to explain what she means by this. Typically, when, when I read about Russia's demodernization over the last few months, it has to do with sanctions, it has to do with the economy, and, you know, it's like reverse development, right? And they're like, they're having to rely on less advanced, you know, like technologies and so on. And the, the idea is that, you know, in so many years or months or whatever, they're going to be going backwards, or they're going to be going so slowly that it's, it's demodernization, basically. But you talk about, you also talk about demodernizing society and foreign policy. Generally speaking, like, wh what do you mean by that? I think... I mean, the technological demodernization exists as well, the things you refer. Uh, Riza Olva as well, but I just didn't find them so interesting to discuss. Sure. But yes, following the debate in the Russian society, it has become sort of primitively patriotic and slogan-heavy. I mean, to me, it, it really reminds of my Soviet childhood. And, and that is not a sophisticated debate for a big country in 21st century facing multiple problems, dilemmas as us as all. This is a fairy tale world, black, white, very primitive. And likewise, foreign policy. I was really impressed by Russia's foreign policy debate that was going on largely unnoticed by the West during the pandemic. And different people really try to outline different approaches to uh, all sorts of problems. Many of the same experts we all know, Andrei Kortunov, Dmitry Trenin, Fyodor Lukyanov, but also others. And it struck me as even more interesting than, than Western debate, because they really try to abandon some of the um, old paradigms and dichotomies. And and, and try to look the world afresh and, and think of, of something new that would work for Russia. And now all that has been brushed aside by President Putin. And, and basically Russia's foreign policy is about gathering of the lands, which is the 19th century mm -hmm. thing yeah. in, in a way. So that's why I say that, they, that Russia has turned into something archaic. I mean, economy, foreign policy, society, they're all archaic in their own ways. Yeah. But I think it's um, not unreasonable to claim so. Do you think that, that Soviet foreign policy was also archaic for its time, or it fit the time and going back to that mindset now is archaic, but that back then they were, they were 
cutting edge or, or something. I think it depends on which parts of Soviet foreign policy you, you look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been reading Ganatoli uh, Dabrenin's memoirs mm-hmm. and, and reads are not bad at all. Some people in, in, in Soviet foreign policy were really good. I've interviewed Alexander Pesmertnik, former foreign minister. It was really interesting. I paid a visit to Anatoly Adamishin in his retirement uh, somewhere in the outskirts of Moscow recently. And I think these people for that time were doing a good job and they were really good specialists on, on our fields. But also, you know, Soviet foreign policy was not all about gathering of lands. I mean, it, it might have been so under Stalin, but, but not really later on, even Prashnev. I mean, he, he didn't occupy Czechoslovakia. He didn't occupy Afghanistan. It was about something else. Whereas Putin's war in Ukraine is really about taking away bits of land from Ukraine to Russia or making all of Ukraine into Russia. We don't know yet which it is. Mm -hmm. In the article, you you mentioned that that Russian policy in Africa and Syria started out with, I guess, like what you might describe as these sort of archaic motives, these sort of more 19th century big, big power motives, but they evolved into something more modern. Can you explain what you mean by that? And do you think that that is that able to continue? Because it's not Ukraine, right? They can, are they, or, or are they no longer able to do in Syria and Africa what they did before the invasion? Yeah, well, that is a good question. I don't think that invasion uh, of, of Syria or uh, sending troops to Syria was outright archaic. But I, I think the motivation for that was it still was related to competition with the West. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that for Putin, it was sort of philosophical and ideological. He, he wanted to teach the West a lesson on how you need to handle a popular uprising, not by you know, supporting democracy that for Putin only creates chaos. And I mean, let's be frank, he has some basis <laughs> for saying so. Right. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but, you know, for him, it's about supporting the strong man, yeah. creating order that is manageable. And he wanted to show us all how it's done. Right. Well, that didn't quite work out like that. It was, it was all much more complicated. Military success proved hard to be, to convert into, uh, into diplomatic settlement. However, in the process, Russia became a prominent regional player and, and that is actually bringing in benefits of its own. And I think, yes, having a voice when Saudi Arabia sets oil prices is an important thing for mm-hmm. a country like, like Russia. Mm-hmm. And we see it today as, as well. Uh, and likewise, Africa, you know, I think Africa might have been really Wagner groups looking for profitable business. And maybe, maybe that was all that was but it could have become something more. I mean, yet again, in Russia's foreign policy discussions, many fairly smart people suggested that Africa could be an important end in itself. And there was that tendency in Russia to cultivate relationships in all corners of the world that could help Russia to have an independent foreign policy agenda, not to be firmly in in the Western camp, or, or China's camp, but, but having its own way somehow in between. And I thought that this was 
you know, maybe pleasant because often, uh, often the French Russia cultivated and the means it used were far from pleasant, but it was not stupid if you are Russia. But now I think the, uh, yet again, invasion of Ukraine has basically blown it, it all. And, and to me, it's a really big question whether you know, sort of pragmatic and more modern agenda can ever be reconciled with uh, land grabbing agenda in, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You say ever, does that mean that so long? I mean, I guess like in terms of the timeline that you see when it comes to the setback that the invasion is, it, it, when you th- think of that, do you think, okay, it's a generation, it's a century, it's, it, could, it could flip with one administration? I know that you conclude your article with with the argument that you know the, you have this phrase that it's it's very well worded. The contours of Europe's future relations with Russia will be drawn on today's battlefield. So obviously, a lot depends on just how much land they get. But it, but assuming that they keep even what they have now, which is already not insubstantial, do you think that's in, like in terms of like the long durée? What's your? I know this. I'm asking you to kind of rub a crystal ball here, but what seems reasonable to you? I do not know. I and I, I think really the outcome on the on the ground plays a huge role here because if if Russia takes any territory uh, from that war, then it will also need to take the narrative of the war. Then it will need to find ways of justifying it, and that'll pose an eternal well eternal. I mean, how long is eternity? <laughs> Three days. Right. But, you know, in the foreseeable future, it will be a problem in, yeah. its, in its relationship with the West. So mm-hmm. really, the less land they end up with, the easier for Russia it will be to re-socialize into so-called modern world and, and foster relationships that are about something else, not just about who recognizes our victories in Ukraine, who does not. One of the premises, it seems to me, of the the notion that, that Russia was building a modern foreign policy and kind of carving out a space for itself that wasn't necessarily pro-Western, but it wasn't necessarily anti-Western either, was that there is space to exist kind of outside the, the, the Western community, so to speak. Now, is it possible that Russia could take, Russia will pr- presumably take on this burden of Ukrainian territory unless they are pushed back to their own borders, which seems unlikely at this point. But so let's, let's assume that in the future, they're going to have this baggage essentially that will make them persona non grata among the West. Now, does that also make them a pariah to the rest of the world or given the kind of multipolarity that is emerging or the fact that it's just China's not so bothered by it? How much of a pariah do you think this makes Russia going forward saddled with this with this uh, stolen land? A good question. And I, I guess the answer depends on which countries we are talking. I mean, yeah. I don't think that in China's eyes, Russia will become a prior. Yeah. I think they may view what Russia has done as stupid, but they are happy to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, for China, the situation is win-win. Russia is challenging America. Russia is weakening America or at least distracting its attention and resources away from China. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's, what's not to like when you are Beijing? And at the same time, the penalties imposed on Russian economy make it easier for China to make inroads into Russia and actually dictate terms to Russia, both as concerns economy, investments, I guess also military and political things. So, you know, I I think China will make full use of the situation. Mm-hmm. And interesting question, of course, is, is the so-called rest of the world, the global south, etc., who are very sensitive about colonialism, but they don't rush to condemn Russia's colonial war. Mm-hmm. Also, maybe partly because they see West as being the other side of that argument, and they have their own complaints to the West, some justified, others, others less so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my small bit of advice, which is not original at all, you know, try, try to talk with these countries. And, mm-hmm. and some people do. <laughs> I was really uh, struck by how systematically the Finns approach it. I recently met Pekka Havis, the Finnish foreign minister, and he told at length about his exchanges with African countries, mm-hmm. where he tries to raise that point. I was, I was truly impressed. I think more people should do it and more, uh, and more seriously, not just as a soundbite, but, but something we, we really need. So for the West now, we, I mean, there is a sort of, feeling in the West that global opinion is on our side, but I'm afraid that we are misreading the global opinion. It's mm-hmm. our opinion that right. is on our side, but with global opinion, we, we would need to work a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, and this matters. It matters even in practical things. You know, if, uh, if we want to increase world's oil production to bring prices down so that Russia would not benefit so much and Western countries would still get to be in a, their energy needs met. That means you need to cultivate relationships outside the West because, you know, Scotland, Norway and the United States do not provide all the energy needs we have. Right. Do you think that that kind of, that kind of uh, camaraderie or, or, or community can be cultivated through increased talks alone? Because it seems as though, I mean, not to sound too cynical, but like if, if, Africa, if Africa's fuel and food prices go up because of the war in Ukraine, but it, or, I mean, it's, be, it's because of the war, but it's also because of the sanctions, right? So it depends kind of if, if, if Africa feels that it's these sanctions that the West has imposed that are to blame, then, I mean, I know that, that there's arguments that can be made in different directions, depending on which commodities you're talking about and so on. But if, if the West comes to them and says, well, we've imposed these sanctions because Russia is, is waging an aggressive war and they're, they're slaughtering civilians and this is the right thing to do. Can you tell, can you convince through argumentation the, the millions of people in Africa that they should just have to pay higher prices for this stuff or maybe just not get it at all since the West is going to be buying it up anyway? I mean, it, it, I just wonder, like, what are the limitations of, of engagement as opposed to just the material interests are just never, not going to be on the side of Africa in, in this matter? Yeah, no, I don't think talking alone will, will do the trick at all. I mean, you'd need to think of policies uh, that right. would help them as well, because, of course, they will ask what's in it for us, and they are, they are perfectly entitled to. Yeah. And, you know, here, that goes already beyond my expertise, but <laughs> I, I, I guess there are things uh, to be done. I mean, 
concerning food supplies, sure. uh, etc. Yeah, and I think we should we should actually work a lot more on on those sorts of things, uh, also in the context of contest with Russia. Right. You mentioned before, and, and in the article, you you also discuss Russia's kind of turn to colonialism or re- return to colonialism, or, or you know. It's 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 just sort of redis- it's rediscovering its its imperial motives, I guess. Or Putin has sort of you know forced them back on the country. This is this has been a conversation among some policymakers in the West and the United States, certainly. This notion that Russia's decolonization, and sometimes this goes straight to like the Russian Federation itself and the captive nations and so on, and not just Russia's ambitions or aggression, is sort of along its periphery. But that this this should be a Western imperative. And, you know, I, I wonder, do you think that for, for Russia to sort of regain or to, to, to win a place in, in kind of the Western community, it has to embrace decolonization? And is this something that can be facilitated f- from, from without, you know, externally? Because it seems like the most effective changes of any kind are obviously homegrown. And you make this point, you know, in your article that this third Russia, this like more more democratic, but not quite democratic Russia, could, there, there could have been this thing that was homegrown, and that presumably would have been longer lasting. Now, what about, what about decolonization? Was there, is there, was there any kind of movement for that? Or did you see trends in that direction? Or is that, is that, something, is that kind of a Western you know, fascination that doesn't necessarily resonate so much in the Russian context? Yeah, I think it is a bit Western fascination, to be honest. I don't see meaningful separatism in, in Russia. Yeah. I think, you know, Chechnya was the only one who ever wanted sincerely to leave and, and that ended badly for them. I don't think any other of the national republics were ever serious about it. Yeah. Uh, the claims for sovereignty were rather that in order to trade with Moscow, squeeze more out from Moscow. And I, I don't think that, you know... What about internationally? Do you think that, you know, now that Russia is picking up these territories in Georgia, in Ukraine, is it possible that... I mean, I know that right now domestic opposition is not extremely possible, but presumably it'll, it'll flower up a bit later at some point. Do you think that it's possible that, that oppositionists or dissidents might seize on the language of decolonization, not necessarily domestically, because as you've said, there's not really movements in that regard, but in terms of rolling back, you know, these territorial grabs, essentially. And I know you in the article, you also point out that it will likely be political suicide for any elected officials to say, let's give back these territories that we spilled all this blood and treasure for. But the dissidents usually are not afraid, the really hardcore ones are not afraid of saying things that most Russians would tar and feather them for. So, I mean, do you, do you think that this could, is this something the intelligentsia might, might pick up at some point? Well, it is not totally impossible. I mean, I, I remember from the um, dying years of the Soviet Union that, you know, among historians, and that includes Russian historians, it was relatively commonplace to condemn many of, of Stalin's territorial wars, you know, against Finland or, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Sarabia, whatnot. So, yeah. and there was a feeling that, that these things were not right. I think that actually went quite far among all sorts of dissident intelligentsia. They, they, they need, didn't have to be even sort of liberal and Western-minded. Many others also thought that 
results of things are, are not not good. So to be honest, I I also I somehow it's hard to imagine what will happen because it's hard to imagine Russia really voluntarily giving land back. At the same time, it is also hard to imagine, you know, Russians, especially the sort of intelligentsia or what passes for intelligentsia these days and in the future, of honestly approving of it. Because what they have done in Ukraine is is such a horror. And I I don't think Yeah. I don't think that is something that goes together with a Russian society as I know it. I mean, these days, yeah, you you can see people on Russian TV who justify what they are doing in 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 very terrible language and 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 cynical terms. Um, but uh, but that's not all there is, and I I think that. I've, big parts of the elites are actually deep down horrified by what is happening. In the article, you talk about Russian professionalism as a sort of double-edged sword, right? So it, it was the driving engine of this modernizing force that, you know, was derailed by Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. It was driving sort of a kind of proto-democracy or a russified democracy, and that was potentially going to be something really good, but it's not really in motion anymore. And you have this argument that that uh, in Russia, democracy was driven by needs, not by ideals. And so there was the professionalism d- domestically that was driving kind of these like rule of law and, uh, and kind of like police accountability kind of like uh, uh, needs. But what I, what I wondered is when needs are driving Russia's sort of democratization domestically, what about internationally? Like, what, what were the needs that were driving Russia's, the modernization of Russia's foreign policy up until the invasion of Ukraine? Like, the need for, you know, trade? Or what, what exactly did you have in mind? Well, domestically, Russia has actually had the, both brands of democracy. In the 1990s, it was driven by ideas, ideals, and liberal intelligentsia. So that was a sentiment that was fairly similar to what drove much of uh, Eastern and Central Europe at, at the time. Right. But yes, later, later it changed. I mean, for Russians, it, it took a different term. Many people now feel that under the label of democracy, all sorts of horrible things were imposed upon Russia by foreigners or by by Russians and, you know, up to point they're right. I mean, oligarchs basically stole their democracy and the story we we all know. Right. So, yes, and that that gave rise to that new brand of of democracy that's grown out of real-life needs. Mm -hmm. And I find it really interesting. Myself, I, I started noticing this cohort of people when I was working on my paper on uh, new generation in Russia's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And I came across many people who were really decent, nice, professional, but very critical of the West, yeah. fairly or otherwise. I mean, that was, that was both as, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, I mean, the... But domestic function was was clearly a positive one. The the things they wanted domestically were, I think, good for Russia or would be would be good for any country. And then, 
yeah, we have been discussing the same things with Mark Galeotti, who has been seeing the same phenomenon on his fields, uh, law enforcement, etc. So I became really intrigued yeah. by it. But of course, I mean, the influence restraint could have was always somewhat limited because the Kremlin is doing its own thing and they don't necessarily take on board many of these ideas. And you can see how they lose out in intra-Russian debates. And here I come to foreign policy. I mean, that's that's the reason why economic technocrats always lose out to security apparatus. Mm-hmm. And there was a genuine foreign policy debate, I think, in Russia in 2018, ahead of Putin's latest re-election. Right. And people like Kudrin tried to make the case that you know, if we want our economy to grow and to grow smartly, then we need to improve relations with the West. And for that, Russia also needs to do something. We shouldn't just expect the West to reach out to us. Mm-hmm. So basically they were advocating making modernization agenda also part of Russia's foreign policy. I see. But we don't know. Maybe we will learn from the archives to what extent Putin even considered it. Yeah. But then nothing happened, partially because what we did in Salisbury closed many of, of these options for Russia it probably wasn't Putin's choice. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I should say that in, in, in foreign policy, it tends to be the case that modernization agenda loses out to security agenda. Right. And, and there is nothing that forces Moscow to reconsider. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, I spoke to Kadri Leek, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, about her recent essay, Putin's Archaic War, Russia's Newly Outlawed Professional Class, and How It Could One Day Return. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting whether in English or in Russian, or both, please consider making a donation at support.meduza.io slash en to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we'll take whatever you can spare, obviously. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. Call